Welcome everyone, live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia, you're listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live. My name is Jenna and my co-hosts today are Alex, Lara and Eva. Our special guest today is Sally Morgan. Hi Sally, welcome to the show. Um, we want to know um, about the Hope Co-op. All right, I'll try and I'll tell you a story. That's probably the best way to tell you about Hope Co-op. So... Quite a long time ago, in about 2012, I was working at a school not too far from here, um, the St Joseph's Flexible Learning Centre, and it was an alternative school for young people up to the age of 25 who were, for a whole lot of reasons, sort of excluded from mainstream education. And usually that was, you know, people who'd had really difficult backgrounds they might have been in out-of-home care or been in youth justice or had drug and alcohol issues that sort of life experience so I went there to teach with those young people and then in 2014 we started to get enrollments from young people who were generally just over 18 some of them a bit younger who were just getting out of immigration detention so they were asylum seekers who'd arrived by boat they couldn't find any education. They didn't have education rights into most schools. Some of them were too old, but they didn't know any English. They'd had a really, you know, difficult time, obviously, in their own country and then coming here. And some of them had been locked up for anywhere up to two or three years in immigration detention in Australia. And I was teaching the senior class. So... Very quickly, St Joseph's got about 100 and up to about 140 asylum seeker young people enrolled, which was a huge number in Australia because most schools weren't letting them enrol because there was no government funding. So the government wasn't supporting their education. I was the year 12 teacher and some of them were really, uh, really aspirational, really hardworking some of them had been learning English in detention from books in the library or watching movies and learning how to speak English. Those young people ended up in my class, which was a bit of a surprise to me. You know, I was just, my history was an, as an English and a media teacher, music. And so in 2015, I ended up with just a small group of young people who were finishing their Year 12 uh, studies in VCAL, we didn't do VCE, and they said to me in about the October um, of that year, what can we do next year? Like they were really highly motivated young people and I thought, well, I don't really know because I'm an English teacher, I'm not a careers teacher. Usually students, in my experience, ask their parents about that, you know, the English teacher doesn't worry about what you're going to do next year, sort of. But these young people didn't have parents and we didn't have a careers teacher who was used to people finishing year 12 because the other young people in the school weren't up to that yet. So I had this really motivated group of young people, just about five of them, and I started to research this, I guess, and figure out what can you do next year. And that's when I found out that they couldn't do anything, like they weren't allowed to go to university or TAFE or anything. And so I told these young men, they were all young men at that time in my class, and I said, I don't 
think there's anywhere, but I'll try and find something. And they started to get really lazy, <laughs> like they had been perfect students in my opinion. And then all of a sudden they started coming late, going to sleep on their desk, um, leaving early, not coming. And after a few weeks of this, I said to a couple of them, you know, what's going on? And they said, uh, well, to be honest, we want to fail because that's the only way we can continue with our education is to fail this year and come back and do it again. And I was really shocked, you know, as a year 12 teacher, you're sort of pushing your students towards the next thing and there was no next thing. So I was pretty angry about this, really, not with them but angry with the policies that made this situation. So I started to look into trying to find ways just person by person to find a university who would let them in or a TAFE who would let them in. Um, so that was sort of the beginnings of Hope Co-op really. Uh, I did that for a couple of years uh, with the next classes and I got uh, we got a project up with the Victorian government to fund it so that I wasn't in class all the time. I could be out, you know, hassling people in universities and writing emails and making phone calls and all that sort of stuff. So that worked really well. We got about 36 people across the next couple of years into either university or TAFE or traineeships in jobs. So this was quite a big deal. It doesn't sound like a lot of people, but that was everybody that we had graduate. So we had 100% of people finding some pathway into something that suited them. Um, then the school I was at decided to close that program, um, which was a bit heartbreaking for me. Um, I guess it was because that wasn't really what the school was set up for, but it was set up for those young people I talked about earlier, you know, who had drug and alcohol issues or really problematic things at home. It wasn't about getting people into university necessarily. Anyway, I had to make a decision about whether to go, oh, well, sorry, guys, I know you're halfway through uni and you've got no Centrelink and you've got no families and you've got no help, but I've got to, I've got to go now. <laughs> or to find a way to sort of keep walking with them. A lot of them didn't have visas at that point. They still had bridging visas or no visa at all, um, they were, you know, still in a really, really difficult position. And as I mentioned, they had no Centrelink. So that was one of the government rules was if you study, you can have no money. <laughs> so if you don't study, we'll support you a little bit. But if you do study, you can't have anything, which seemed really crazy to me. So anyway, the long and the short of it is I decided to leave the school and find a way to go on with these young people. I went back to university to do um, a PhD in action with action research and the action was finding a way forward with these young people and the way forward that we found was to set up this little organisation called Hope Cooperative. So that was really me, another couple of educators and about 15 students and we started it. So I know that's a long answer but that's the kind of, the story of how we started, yeah. 
Um, hi, Sally. I'm Eva. And Eva. my question is, how did you get involved with helping people seek asylum? Mm, I guess, Eva, some of that I've sort of probably covered a bit with that answer, but hmm, thinking how, how else? I, I guess a key part of getting involved more than just being a student-teacher sort of relationship was because the school I was in was, was a flexible learning centre. Uh, we had things like it's called rolling enrolments. So you know how like here at your school and in most schools you start at the beginning of the year or maybe if you have to move schools the beginning of a term but the teachers don't say, oh, great, you can start, you know, your Year 9 English in July. You say, oh, you're halfway through, we've already started, you know. Well, St Joe's was different to that. We had this rolling enrolments where if someone came in on a Friday and said, I want to come back to school, they could start the next Monday, which was really challenging as a teacher because it means that, you know, you don't, you're constantly starting again with people and you have to have a really flexible um, curriculum, a flexible way of doing things. And we also had um, a youth worker with us. So there was a teacher and a youth worker and it was a bit like primary school um, where you have your one classroom. So you got to know your students as a teacher much better than in a mainstream school, even though you can get to know your students or your teachers well in a school this was like much more it was almost like a uh, like a family sort of I guess so I had this one group of students for the whole year and they'd go off and do vet subjects or other subjects but basically I was their teacher and the person who was my partner my youth work partner was their youth worker so I learned a lot about the rest of their lives not just when they came into class so I learned about visas. I learned about what they'd been through. We all got to trust each other enough that they'd tell me things that maybe in a more traditional school students wouldn't tell me. And also they didn't have families here, most of those young people. So, And, and they didn't know any Australians. I remember going once for a meal with one family. Myself and my youth worker went to their house for a meal, which is unusual, yeah, you normally don't invite your teachers home for a meal. <laughs> but um, we realised that for this young man, he said he no Australian had ever come into his house before and he'd been here by that point about four years. So I was really shocked about that, you know, and just realised that it's really hard for people to settle into a new place um, and connect with local people. So that sort of... Because the school was like that, I got to know and get quite deeply involved with, yeah, people seeking asylum. Yeah. Hi, Sally. I'm Lara. Hello. My question is, how do you think that your previous work in teaching at schools can be similar to what you do now? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I, I've just just last week, become Dr Morgan, which is really funny and it feels very strange. But I'm looking at, you know, working more in universities and working more in research with people seeking asylum, doing more, I guess, of what I've already been doing for the last few years. 
And in some ways what I'm doing now as, you know, Dr Morgan, which still really makes me laugh, but that sort of university work that seems quite high level or it might look like that from the outside, um, it's really not very different from what I did in schools because it's still just working, I guess, kind of listening to people, getting to know people, trying to do what I can to support people's learning, I guess, you know, sort of like being in a in a classroom. It's still pretty much the same thing but it's just with different people and different problems and, yeah, it's it's sort of the same but just different bucket. <laughs> yeah. Um, hi, Sally. I'm Alex and... Within your work, have you ever felt a particular connection with the people that you've worked with? Yeah, heaps, Alex. I think that's sort of like my last answer. It's actually a very strong connection with people. And as a teacher, that's kind of how I tended to teach is I believe that we learn best from people who we like and who like us. (laughs) You know, that was how it was for me as a student even when I was a kid, right through to year 12, right through in university. So, and I see that with my students, you know, whether they're in year seven or at university, that that a connection with people is really, really important. And maybe it matters more than most things. That's sort of what I believe, I think. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live, live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Jenna and my co-hosts today are Alex, Lara and Eva and our special guest today is Sally Morgan. I was wondering what kind of work you did in your time in Africa. Oh, wow. I didn't know you knew about my time in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I was at that time I was also a, a teacher. I was a year 10 teacher and my husband was involved with a man who worked for World Vision in a little country right in the sort of middle eastern part of Africa called Rwanda and this man who became a friend of ours, um, he'd worked there after the genocide that happened there in 1994 and his role was um, I think it was called peace builder, you know, reconciliation and peace building manager at World Vision which is a really big job description in a place where there's just been nearly a million people killed. And Rwanda is a tiny country. It's about a third the size of Tasmania. So when you're talking about a million people being killed in about 100 days, you can sort of get a little sense of what Rwanda was like in 1994. And then what John's job is, our friend John, what his job might have been like to try to get people somehow to begin to recover and to build peace. So my husband went with him to take some photos in 2007 because John was going back and forward um, to sort of work with people in with World Vision. And I was teaching Year 10 at the time and it just so happened that on our Year 10 curriculum was the film um, Hotel Rwanda. And... So I said to Dave, my husband, you know, bring me back some photos (laughs) 
or and when he came back, he actually ended up not just doing photos but interviewing people, a bit like you guys are, so and and doing video. So he sort of decided if you're going to take a camera, you may as well take a video camera. And then he came back with these amazing interviews with people, both people who were involved in killing and people who were their victims and people who had gone through this incredible restorative justice sort of process. Um, so, you know, you'd be a crazy English teacher not to use some of that footage in your class. So I did that. And then eventually uh, Dave went back and I went with him in 2013. So that overlapped with my work at St Joe's and I took a year off St Joe's to go and try and finish up that work. And then we came back with all of this incredible footage again and, yeah, we, we did various things over there. We, we put together... Yeah, actually, before I went there, I was putting together the material that he'd, um, Dave had brought back the first time into curriculum materials and a website, a sort of educational website for, for teenagers um, because I think uh, just what those people understood about recovering from conflict and also about what leads to conflict and what's dangerous when countries have certain combinations of problems. You know, there was so much that every human being should learn from those Rwandan people. So we put together, yeah, curriculum materials and went back and did a bit of training with teachers. I remember trying to teach um, <laughs> teach Rwandan teachers uh, how to use thinking hats. Have you guys ever used thinking hats where you use, you know, red hats emotions and white hats facts and black hats being cautious and it's just a way of thinking through things. And I was trying to teach these teachers how to use this and I said to them maybe you should get um, students into groups, you know, and they had these really heavy, heavy tables and chairs that you couldn't actually lift. Like you really couldn't. They were like the desk and the chairs all together, really heavy wooden things. And I just sort of realised how different teaching was in Africa compared to here because I just went, oh, you know, get your students to hop into groups and move around the room. And then I went, oh, no, the tables are too heavy. <laughs> just simple things like that. So I learned a lot. They said it was the hardest work their students had ever done to be thinking in this sort of critical thinking way. So it was really fun to try and share some of my Australian teacher training with with those teachers. So that was Africa. Sorry, thanks. <laughs> um, what kind of people have inspired you along your journey? Oh, wow, lots and lots. Um, I guess I think of really important women in my life and one, my mum was also a teacher and I remember her saying to me, never be a teacher, that's crazy, don't be a teacher. But actually I'd learnt so much about being a teacher from her without realising it, you know. Um, and when I first graduated from uni, when I first got my teaching qualification, she gave me a wonderful book by a man called Paolo Frieri who was also a kind of 
rebellious and inspiring educator. And he'd written a book called um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And pedagogy is about um, sort of ways of learning and philosophies of learning and teaching. So it was about how education can change oppressive situations for people. That's what that book was about. And I read that from my mum and it, yeah, that really made a big difference. And, look, there's been many people, I guess, in my life and one one was this man, John, who I mentioned who went to work with World Vision and took on that huge challenge of, you know, going into this very scary situation and, yeah, there's lots. My supervisor at university who's a, a feminist uh, school leadership and refugee researcher, she's really inspired me to understand that it's important that women take up leading positions, um, especially in universities because it's still very, it's not very even at the top end. Um, yeah, so there, there's some of them. <laughs> but it, I could go on all day about people who have inspired me but there's a few, yeah. Um, what setbacks have you faced? Hmm. In life overall? Sort of like in your journey, your career and... Yeah. Um, well, there's been... There's little ones that happen all along the way and then sometimes there's really big ones that I can look back at and go, wow, that was huge. Um, hmm. Probably... If I had to summarise those, I'd say it's been around the setbacks have been times when the struggle to put all my energy into work and alongside putting energy into sort of personal life things or family needs um, has been really hard to manage. Um, I've had some of my, my... I've got two daughters and they're grown up now. Um, one has three kids and, yeah, she went through um, a marriage breakdown and that was sort of really, that was a huge thing to be trying to be a helpful, you know, good parent and grandparent at the same time as studying. And, yeah, I've had sort of illness in my other daughters, had a lot of illness, so... Yeah, same thing, occasionally having to go, I've got to take six months off work. Um, there's two things I remember. There's two times when I've had to do that um, and there's two things I learnt from it. One was from my school's um, the daily organiser when I, I had a full teaching load and this was before I was at St Joe's when I was in a mainstream school. And I had to go from a full teaching load and leadership position, middle leadership, student leadership coordinator role to just coming in, you know, two days a week and felt like the end of the world. But the daily organiser said to me, Sally, in schools, the waters will just close over the gap that you leave because they have to, because the school has to continue going. So... You have to make the choice about your health and your family and your life and we'll be okay. 
someone, you know, it's not going to stop. And that was like, oh, it was felt a bit, you know, disappointing. <laughs> but it also felt like a big relief to go, yeah, of course it will, you know. Some people will miss me but it'll keep going, it'll be okay. So that was one thing. And what was the other one? Yeah, just realising how much support there is among friends and colleagues when things go, you know, when things are really difficult and realising that I don't have to fix it all and that there are people, you know, people who care and people who will step in and help and life continues on. And so a setback is just a maybe an unexpected direction rather than really a setback. It, it's often about what we expect. We think something's going to go this way but we were wrong, <laughs> you know. We, we didn't know it was going to go that way but it always was going to go that way and it's just a bit of a readjusting of your expectations, yeah. Um, and how do you think that your personal qualities have helped you be to become the person that you are today? I think they've actually have a really, really the strongest of influences on on who we become, I think, is our personal qualities in some ways. Um, for me, I think the biggest thing is that I've been willing to risk, like I explained before, um, I've been willing to risk what was stable in my life to do what seemed really important, like uh, leaving St Joseph's. You know, I had a, an ongoing leading teacher position. It was really good and stable for me. But I decided to take the leap and so I think that kind of ability to take a, a risk, Not I'm not generally a very kind of, I don't think, I seem like a risky person or a risk-taking person. Like I, but in some ways, I've taken some very big calculated risks. So, and sort of trusted that uh, the money doesn't matter too much. That was one thing, and that the things I believed in, and that connection with people that you asked about before, um, is the most important thing. And I think. I would say that if you follow that, I don't mean people should be crazy and just go, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, but really think about it and, and follow what your heart says, then it can work out really well. Like like I said, I'm doctor now as of last week and I'm very surprised that me leaving my leading teacher job for something as wobbly as Hope Co-op has led to the point where now I'm applying for jobs in universities. Do you know what I mean? It's, I didn't expect it at the time, but it paid off. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, um, Sally. It's been a great pleasure talking to you today. Live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia, you've been listening to Be Like Her live on Academy Live. My name is Jenna and my co-hosts today were Alex, Lara and Eva. Thank you for joining us today. And we hope you have found the information today useful. Until next time, have a great day.